This is The Guardian. Today, the accidental journalist who'd go on to become one of the most decorated foreign correspondents of his generation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I lived a very boring life under Saddam. Our life was dominated by Saddam, whether we wanted or not. He was on TV all the time, his pictures were in our school books, his poems were recited in school. We praised him. We lived through him. He was more important in our life than God himself. Gaith Abdul Ahad grew up in Baghdad, spent his whole life there, saw a lot. Iraq has invaded neighboring state of Kuwait with fighting reported along the border. The residents say that they were away After the Kuwait invasion and the subsequent 1991 war, 40 days of bombings. Hundreds of Allied aircraft, American, British, Saudi Arabian and Kuwaiti, began a series of heavy bombing raids on targets in Iraq. Then came the sanctions. No more trade with Iraq, a boycott of Iraqi oil, a ban on arms sales, a the ban on The sanctions were the hardest thing that hit Iraq. All economic sanctions directly and indirectly cause death, malnutrition and social destruction in respect of the innocent. We felt that we are in this non-ending cycle of wars, of need, of poverty, of sanctions. In early 2003, Gaith was 28 years old, scratching out a living as an architect, and effectively on the run. In a country ruled by a ruthless regime, he was a military deserter. So I lived this kind of life in Baghdad, changing my address, changing my name, changing my ID cards, and trying to exist. This whole sense of your life seeping away while this dictator is living his megalomaniac dreams. I tried to smuggle myself out of Iraq so many times, and I failed because I just wanted to have a life somewhere else. I just wanted to live. Great and terrible change was coming. American troops were building up forces on Iraq's borders, warning that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and needed to be disarmed by force. Donald Rumsfeld speaks of the Iraqis going deep, of having underground facilities, of hiding factories on the back of trucks. We knew that was a delusion and an excuse to come and attack Saddam. And there was a strange feeling because at one side, you really want to get rid of this dictator and his cronies and security state. But another side of you have seen wars. We've seen it in the 80s and 90s. And we were really, really scared and anxious about the prospect of another war. 
20 years ago today, the US, the UK, and a coalition of other countries made one of the most consequential political decisions of the past few decades. They invaded Iraq. In what many warned back then, and almost everybody acknowledges now, was a catastrophic mistake. It changed the course of so many lives, and it would transform Gates. He'd go from living in hiding to speaking to the world, all thanks to a chance encounter one day on the outskirts of a dictator's palace. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the two-decade anniversary of the war in Iraq. I was in Afghanistan in late 2001. In the years before the invasion of Iraq, James Meek was a foreign correspondent with The Guardian. He was covering the war in Afghanistan, launched by the US and its allies, in the weeks after the World Trade Center and other sites across America were attacked on September 11. There was some moment when I and a group of journalists that I knew were parting ways, and one of them said, see you in Iraq. And this did not seem like a strange thing to say. We all knew already that this was not a certainty, but a very distinct possibility. There had been this animus against Iraq on the side of the United States ever since the previous war in 1991 and the feeling that that was unfinished business. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. Throughout 2002, the US President, George W. Bush, had been building the case for invading Iraq. His intelligence agencies claimed the Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein, was developing chemical and biological weapons. Eleven years ago, as a condition for ending the Persian Gulf War, the Iraqi regime was required to destroy its weapons of mass destruction, to cease all development of such weapons, and to stop all support for terrorist groups. The Iraqi regime has violated all of those obligations. It possesses and produces... UN weapons inspectors, who were only given patchy access to Iraq, weren't finding these weapons, but Bush and the British government, led by Tony Blair, argued... Saddam had them. He was fooling the world. To allow Saddam to use the weapons he has or to get the weapons he wants would be an act of gross irresponsibility and we should not and we must not countenance it. For a year, debate raged in governments, in the media and in the streets. We object in our hearts, in our minds... It is an immoral war that they are beginning, and we must not be silenced. We have to be able to stand up and say, no, we are the people. You are not speaking for us. During one weekend in February 2003, at least six million people gathered in the streets of more than 600 cities around the world to voice opposition to the war. They're considered some of the biggest coordinated protests ever held. 
So who does Mr. Tony Blair represent? Does he represent George Bush or does he represent people of Britain? James was briefly in London in between overseas trips and he was there at one of those demonstrations. I went as a protester. It was a very diverse crowd. Many people who had no history in this way, who didn't have an axe to grind about the West attacking the Muslim world, but simply did not want Britain to be part of an illegal invasion of another country. We've taken our children down, all feel the same as us, and uh, we've come here purely because we just cannot agree to a war that's going to affect more civilians. It was a very impressive sight. And the fact that so many people came out and made their anger clear counted for something. As February stretched into March 2003, the US and Iraq were in a stalemate. Saddam Hussein insisting he had no weapons of mass destruction to give up. And the US and UK building up troops and equipment on Iraq's borders. People in Baghdad and other Iraqi cities braced themselves. There was nothing but fear. We knew what an American bombing campaign means. On the eve of the invasion, the streets almost became deserted, empty. You see this, you know, traffic policemen wearing helmets, um, sandbags around intersections, the party militia dressed in khaki uniforms and with a red kufi around their heads, with Kalashnikovs in street corners. The whole city is militarized, but also this sense of anxiety. Anxiety, and yet again, we go through this whole process of a war with America for another time. Around the same time, James Meek was 400 kilometers away from Gaith, on Iraq's borders with Kuwait, also bracing himself. It was a very strange time. In the weeks leading up to it, The journalists, including myself, were basically preparing to act when the invasion came. James was working with a photographer, Paul O'Driscoll, not embedded with the troops like lots of other reporters, but charting their own path in a little Toyota. On that border was this massive wall of sand called a berm. The border was was basically closed. You weren't supposed to, but you could climb up this gigantic wall of sand. A few days before the invasion, I did climb up and and looked across. You could see on the other side, you could see Iraq, you could see just an ordinary little town and cars moving around. and, And it was disturbing to look at that peaceful scene and think that our guys, supposedly, were were going to lob shells and rockets at it probably in a few days' time. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. The first thing was the bombing that started on the 17th, early in the morning. And after that, it continued. There will be these air raids, this continuous sense of the earth shaking. Next to my house was the headquarters of the 
Air Defense Command, and that was bombed heavily, so I remember my house shaking. Every morning, you wake up and you think, okay, you've, you, you, know, you survived another night of bombing. And then at one point, the bombing turned into, you start hearing the planes screeching over the city. So helicopters started approaching the city. So it's like you're sitting there and the war is coming steadily closer to you. Under cover of night, Allied forces head north towards Baghdad. And up in smoke, oil wells are ablaze. After a couple of weeks of um, traveling through Iraq, moving forward with the US Marines, we came to a bridge across the Diyala River. We crossed this bridge behind these armored personnel carriers just as it was getting dark. It was only then that we realized that we were actually following them into an attack. Within just a few weeks, the invading forces had reached the edge of Baghdad. The invaders, and James, travelling behind them, were getting closer to Gaith's door. The stage was set. An epic battle for Baghdad. But that isn't how it played out. It was the 9th of April. Suddenly everyone disappeared. It's like there is a command came from somewhere telling every single security officer to just disappear. So before the Americans arrived, our street was for the first time empty of any security forces, any security presence, any militiamen. They had all disappeared. And that is the sense, the sensation that, oh my God, Baghdad is free. There are no more Ba'ath Party. There are no more Saddam apparatchiks roaming the streets. But of course, that was a very short-lived hour because right after that, the Americans come with their tanks and weapons. My neighbor comes and knocks at the door and says, the Americans are here. They're here down in the street. And you go down to the street and you see these American Marines. And it's a very strange sensation because suddenly an invading army is down in your own street in front of your house. And they look so movie-like with their guns and wraparound glasses and helmets. And on their heels, of course, comes those people with cameras and dressed in blue with blue helmets. And they were the journalists, of course. Iraq had fallen. It had taken less than three weeks. In many places, its troops had just melted away. It was at that point that we found ourselves in the the final moment of invasion, the final moment of liberation, the culmination of the TV story of the war, when suddenly the streets were deserted except for this uh, column of American armoured vehicles. For the Bush administration and Tony Blair's government, It was a huge triumph, with its own cinematic climax in the streets of Baghdad. There was a sense of excitement, like people watching a movie unfolding in their own street. Uh, A few kids were cheering. I remember a Vatican diplomat standing in front of the Vatican embassy, denouncing this and calling it illegal occupation. But very soon... The people, the Iraqis, the Americans in their vehicles, and a larger crowd of journalists gathered in that square in front of the statue, in front of the Sheraton and Meridian hotels, which had become the headquarters of international media. And spontaneously, people started trying to topple the statue. Crowds of journalists started building up in the square craving an image they knew would be irresistible to viewers back home. Gaith 
and James could have met there for the first time, but they didn't. James, he was busy. I was having a shower. <laughs> um, it, it didn't seem like a significant moment. After an hour or something, the Americans drive their big vehicle into the middle of the square, a big crane, and they put a noose around the statue and they pull the statue. And that image has played again and again and again on TV as if that is the moment when, as if it makes the whole war okay or legitimizes the war. I think what that statue really symbolized was the desperation of an audience to have that clarity and simplicity and virtue of an invasion that they wanted to see as a liberation. And also the willingness of the media organizations, particularly of the United States and Britain, to give people that belief that here was a short, triumphant story that had come to a happy end with the help of the noble U.S. Marines and Army, the evil dictator has been vanquished uh, and the simple folk of Iraq joyfully topple the symbol of their oppressor. Foreign journalists standing freely in the square of Baghdad taking pictures of the statue of Saddam falling, that is the moment when I realized Saddam's regime was over. This person that had dominated your life since you were born was gone. Saddam was an evil man. Uh, the statue was toppled, uh, but that was not really the end of any story. It's a very quick sensation of being released, but followed instantly by the apprehension of what is next. It was the first day of a new Iraq. And before the Saddam era disappeared for good, Gaith decided he wanted to do something that would have been unthinkable just weeks before. He was going to talk his way into Saddam's house. There were American checkpoints in the street. I claimed I was a British journalist. I crossed the Jumhuriya Bridge, very important bridge that connects the east to the west part of the city. And then I walked to the gate of the presidential palace. And I remember an, an American armored vehicle a pool of blood congealing a tired soldier. I asked him, can I go inside? And he just waved me through. And I'm walking through these wide streets, very clean, lots of trees, as if you're walking in a different Baghdad, not the same dusty, dirty old Baghdad, but in a cleaner version of the city. And there, somewhere in the middle of the road, I saw a corpse, my first ever dead man, and I hesitated. Do I continue? Do I go back? I continued. And there you see the palace. It's a monstrosity. It's a mishmash of Greek, Islamic, authoritarian, heavy stone. And the palace was adorned by four busts of Saddam's head. And you see American soldiers reclining on the wall. One American lieutenant gave me a tour of the palace. You see this huge, massive dining hall that had turned into a dormitory. I walked into bedrooms. That sensation that through these corridors Saddam had once walked and he had conferred with his lieutenants and he had ordered the execution of people or led wars and whatnot. These are the memories in these corridors that I was hoping that I can learn from them something about our history. 
The palace sits on a bend in the river, surrounded by water from three sides. So I crossed from one side, and I wanted to continue through the palace grounds and cross another bridge back into my side of the town. But the Americans stationed at the end of the palace grounds were telling me you can't continue further because there's fighting on the old headquarters of the Ba'ath Party. So I had to trace back my steps. We drove past the palaces and we came to this sinister area. There was smoke rising from something burning. There was a car in the middle of the road with the window smashed and two or three dead bodies inside. Me and Paul were talking about what we should do. Should we go on? Should we go back? Uh, should we run? Because there was a very much this air of it being a free fire zone. I was very tired at that point. And I saw this red SUV and I stopped it trying to hitch a ride. We were sitting there talking and I saw this, this figure in the distance who wasn't a soldier. He was wearing sort of green clothes and he had a beard but there was something about him that just didn't look like the the regular Baghdadis. And he was wearing a sort of a satchel. And he came towards us. There were these two foreigners inside. And of course, my line up until then had been, I'm a British journalist, lost my ID. So he came out to the window, we rolled it down and... I said, hi, I'm a British journalist, lost my ID. Oh, really? We're also British journalists. And he said, what paper are you from? And I said, The Guardian and The Observer. And he clapped his hand to his chest and said, oh, my favourite newspaper. I've always thought since then that, and much as I'm sure he does love the Guardian and the Observer, whatever newspaper we said we were from, he probably would have said, that's my favourite newspaper. And I was just like, guys, just take me. I will translate for you. I will show you the city. So that was, that was it. Um, he got in the back of the car. He said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, you know, it'd be quite interesting to see some of the places, these supposed places where um, Iraqis were, were tortured by the regime. And he said, well, let's see what we can find. That's how my life as a journalist started. One day I was an architect, the Americans invade. Next day I work as a translator for one of the best journalists in the world. Gates was unusual in Baghdad at that time. Uh, a man who lives by himself in a, in a room full of books. And that's enough to mark you out. But I think anyone who met him um, got the impression that uh, this was a person you definitely wanted to work with. I was very lucky. It was great to not simply to have an interpreter, um, but to have a friend um, in Baghdad in those times. He was clearly not just knowledgeable, but but really interested in in everything that was that was happening. It was his city, uh, but at the same time, looking at it with a sort of detachment of the possibility of of radical change. And it was such a, a privilege to have his eyes uh, by my side as, as I walked around in those first few days. He was very thorough. He was noting everything. I mean, I remember we went to the old headquarters of the intelligence service and we were walking through the corridors and I could see him making notes. I noticed the way he would ask the question, the way he would conduct his interviews. We went to a security building and there were a bunch of Iraqi police standing around outside. He'd been living in Iraq under the vast and repressive and arbitrary Iraqi security apparatus for all his life. And, and now here he was with this British person and the British person was asking him questions 
And some of these questions were just incredibly impertinent and and, and rude and, and aggressive uh, from the point of view of the person being asked them. Uh, these Iraqi police had acted with complete impunity for decades. Gates had been frightened of them for decades. And here he was asking them questions and questions like, do you feel ashamed of what you've done? I think it was sort of liberating for him, but also slightly scary. And the whole thing was was weird and, and awkward and uneasy for him. So for those first few weeks, they were repair. James the reporter, Gaith, his fixer and translator, telling the story of Iraq as invasion gave way to occupation. And messy reality started to intrude on this simple story of a grateful people liberated and now free to live happily ever after. At one point, we stood in Rashid Street and we were looking at this small rising over the city. While the Americans protected the Ministry of Oil, they stood watching as the Iraqi Museum was looted. 15,000 pieces would disappear. Some of them were never seen again. The Iraqi archives were burning. And that city was being ripped off from inside. Whatever in the city that had survived all these wars and the sanctions was now in front of our eyes being burned and looted. The invasion appeared to have gone to plan. Saddam had been ousted. And now Iraqis were looking around, wondering, what comes next? What was the plan for stabilising Iraq, getting it running again, turning it into a democracy? And many were starting to wonder. Maybe there wasn't a plan at all. There was this continuous thread throughout the invasion of the Americans being heavy-handed, just being literally ignorant about a situation. And by that, I mean, for example, having almost nobody who spoke or wrote Arabic and just not having the beginnings of an understanding of the kind of society that they were working in. It was always going to be a, well, how are you going to deal with civilian society? But they never had the plan. They never had a clue. And everywhere you went, People were being arrested wrongly. Cars were being shot up and people killed. The worst case was a truck with a whole family in the cab, children and uh, parents, uh, that was just shot to pieces by the Marines on the outskirts of Baghdad. Uh, The main reason being that there was nobody in that unit of Marines who knew how to write stop or we will shoot or say stop and we will shoot in Arabic. All they heard was people screaming and, and yeah, uh, there was a, a little boy um, covered in his parents' blood, sobbing his, sobbing his heart out. And the um, American Marines, the same ones who had shot the parents, carrying them away on, on tarpaulins with, with very grey faces. Chaos reigned. Tanks driving in the middle of the street, looting, burning, no electricity, no water, sewage flowing into the rivers, all that chaos. People couldn't believe that the Americans they had no plan, they had no idea. The whole thing was constructed in their heads as a dream invasion that will support itself. The Iraqis couldn't believe that the Americans had done no homework. Be seated, please. Officers and sailors of the USS Abraham Lincoln, my fellow Americans... Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, 
the United States and our allies have prevailed. I remember watching the footage on the TV and the dichotomy between mission accomplished and then you go to the street outside and you see American tanks driving the road, you see soldiers. That is not mission accomplished. Mission accomplished when you pack and you leave, and that's the end of the war. They try to impose this pageantry of the Second World War on a situation that was very, very quickly unfolding into a quagmire, into a civil war. As Iraq was falling apart, Gaith was finding himself in demand. His numbers started being passed around. Work as an architect had dried up. But now, he had another job. I kind of started working as a news assistant for other publications. And for a a whole year, I could travel throughout Iraq. In a way, I was also a foreigner. It was also a journey of discovery of my own country. The stories we were not told, the stories that people didn't even tell about friends, about family members executed, about uprisings, about mass graves. All these stories started coming to the surface. In a way, I was exploring the country just like the foreign journalists. The only difference that I spoke the language and I knew where to go and how to see things. But again, I was seeing things for the first time in my life. Mostly, he was working with journalists to help them tell their stories. But quietly, and back then without an audience, Gaith was also figuring out how to tell the stories himself. One of the first things I he told me when uh, when we met was that he was keeping a journal. I knew he read a lot. I knew that he was a great noticer of things. I knew he was great at characterizing the way people are, almost like a novelistic skill. I didn't really think about whether he might want to be a journalist. I'm, I'm not sure he did really want to be a journalist, but I... I knew he had the capacity to be some kind of of writer. As the occupation stretched from months to years, Iraq was shattering into pieces, each piece controlled by one militia or another. There was a vacuum, and that vacuum was filled very quickly by, you know, all kind of people who wanted to fight the Americans, who wanted to defeat the Americans, who had their own grievances against the Americans. So you have the jihadis coming, many of them Afghanistan veterans, Smarting at the losses in Afghanistan and wanting to exact revenge on the Americans. While on the other side, you have all these militias that kind of were nurtured in Iran and they also had grievances with the Americans. Of course, very quickly, the jihadis started these bombing campaigns, stoking the sectarian war because they thought having a sectarian war in Iraq is the best way to create a a resistance to the Americans or something like that. And very quickly, by the end of 2003, early 2004, the country was in a state of civil war. With the appetite for stories from Iraq growing, Gaith wasn't only translating. Now he was taking pictures. I had also become a wire photographer, so I would chase car bombs and clashes in the streets and produce this news photography. And, and at one point in 2004, I think the insurgency had become widespread across Iraq. And I called Ian, Ian Katz at the time, the G2 editor of The Guardian. And I said, look, I'm going to these towns of Karbala, uh, districts of Baghdad and Fallujah, and I'm going to take pictures of this war that's raging. 
would you be interested in a, in a story? And he said, of course. And I think that is the first real start as a, as a journalist. Gaith's first published article in The Guardian is pretty remarkable to go back and read. The writing is sparse, no big ideas, just what he's seeing and hearing. I came to English very late in my life, and, and it's still my second language. But I work as a visual person, be it an architect or be it a photographer, and it's so much easier to describe what you see because it's a visual thing. Something is happening right in front of your eyes and your eyes is like a camera recording everything going on. And again, as a photographer at the time, I was actually taking pictures and recording this event. So that creates a different style of writing, which is, I think, is much closer to me. But the thing about Gaith's early pieces is they're funny. One man greets him, he says, with what he calls the famous welcoming smile of the Fallujans, a look of, what the F are you doing here? He's picking up on local slang, reporting conversations he's overhearing. But what's really incredible is whose conversations he's overhearing. Not the American troops, not even the Iraqi army, but the insurgents themselves, the ones trying to kill the Americans. Gaith is spending time with them. He's telling their stories. And some are bloodthirsty killers. But a lot of them are just young guys in old Arsenal shirts and flip-flops, passing the time between American attacks by sitting around drinking beer. I said his writing didn't have big ideas, but that isn't quite right. There is a message that emerges from these different scenes and characters he's sketching. It's that even if you've been following the war closely, this country that the US and UK invaded was so much more complex than anyone in those countries understood. And this mission to remake Iraq as some kind of liberal democracy we could recognise, it was shamefully naive. Five years after the invasion, with at least 200,000 Iraqi civilians killed by some estimates, the civil war sparked by the American invasion had burned itself out. Iraq's prime minister at the time, a man who owed his position to the US, had the opportunity to start healing the divisions in his society, but he didn't take it. And that created the conditions, coupled with the effects of the Arab Spring in neighbouring Syria and the civil war, which allowed the Al-Qaeda and other jihadis, now calling themselves the Islamic State or ISIS, Daesh, to reconstruct their lines, benefit from the chaos of civil war, come back into Iraq, which of course led to the fall of Mosul and the second much more brutal civil war that raged in Iraq. When ISIS came, in the first couple of months, the people of Mosul thought of them as liberators, and ISIS were kind of keen to show itself as this new, reconstructed kind of insurgency. It's no longer an insurgency, actually, but it is a state. That delusion very quickly disappeared, and ISIS emerged to be one of the most brutal organizations in the history of humanity, killing people, maiming, enslaving. As one civil war gave way to another, Gaith was still there, reporting. And getting recognised for his work. 
The guy who blagged his way into Saddam's palace in 2003 by claiming he was a journalist had become one of the most recognised reporters of his generation. He's been awarded the Foreign Reporter of the Year at the British Press Awards, the Martha Gellhorn Prize, the Orwell Prize, and two Emmys. Today, he lives in Istanbul, covering a region still grappling with the forces unleashed by the invasion. The idea of democracy itself is so tainted now in the Middle East because when you talk about democracy, people say, oh, the American democracy, is that what you want? That's one factor. The other factor is with the Americans bombing Iraq, occupying Iraq, it becomes the justification that other dictators use to to wage their own wars. When you talk about the conflict in Ukraine in the Middle East, people would always answer but oh but the americans did the same thing as if one illegal war justifies another illegal war and that is the zero-sum game mentality of these strong men democracy was another victim of the whole iraq war he's seen so much in his home country and across the arab world that's left him dispirited but it isn't just the miserable stories that have stuck with him 20 years of covering conflict, and and any time, any amount of time you cover conflict, you see violence, you see a lot of violence, and you see a lot of cruelty. People, especially people with guns, tend to be very cruel to other human beings. So that is one thing you always expect. The one thing that always shocks me, that I'm not used to, is when I see the kindness. So I remember... In 2019, in this Tishreen uprising in Baghdad, this old woman making sandwiches and giving them to, to, to random people on the streets of women and girls and working as medics in tents of, of a school teacher and his students chasing uh, tear gas canisters and extinguishing them. That level of solidarity, of kindness, is what stays with me. Even when the people are killing each other, there are other people who are helping, who are giving water, who are sheltering their neighbours. Coming up, the toxic legacy of the invasion, both in Iraq and at home in the UK. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online 
and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. This week's anniversary of the invasion of Iraq is a bit arbitrary. In Iraq itself, there won't be any public ceremony. How can you commemorate something if it feels like it hasn't ended? Iraq 20 years later is a mutant state. It's a country built on contradictions. It has a liberal democratic constitution, and yet it uses the penal code from 1969 that was put by the Ba'ath regime. Its army equipped by the Americans, its generals are allied with Iran. In the US, the UK, and the other countries that made up the coalition of the willing, the 20-year mark since the invasion is an uncomfortable date. Iraq was my first searing political memory. For lots of people in my generation, it feels like it's cast a shadow over everything that's come since. It's added to the seemingly ever-growing cynicism that people have about their government. There are some people who argue that the protests against the war, the the size, the scale, and the legacy of bitterness that was left uh, by the invasion in Britain did contribute to Britain's subsequent reluctance to get drawn into the Syrian quagmire. But I think in the broader sense, every act of protest, like every act of war, leaves a mark on on the general political consciousness. And protest does help the government understand, even if it seems to fail in its principal goal, it still uh, draws a line. It's, It's an amber warning for the authorities that the Patience of people is not to be taken for granted. It's not unlimited. I suppose that's the crumb of of hope that we can take from the experience. The one thing that is striking 20 years later is the fact that there is no accountability. No accountability from the people who led the war, who executed the war. No accountability from the, the Iraqis who killed and fought each other. How can we talk about restitution of rights or justice or whatever if no one had confessed what they did? I mean, people, Rumsfeld and others, they die in peace. I don't want them to die in jail, but I want them to come out and apologize, just like people in this country. And the same thing with the Iraqis. This is the most important thing. Without accountability, without people confessing, telling history of what they did in the process of destroying, you know, not only Iraq, but the rest of the region, we will never have these wounds healed and will continue this cycle of trauma and violence unless there is a stop, there is accountability. That was Gaith Abdul-Ahad. Gaith will be speaking to Devika Bart in a live-streamed event about his new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, on Monday the 27th of March from 8pm. Book tickets at theguardian.com forward slash guardian live. James Meek is now a contributing editor with the London Review of Books and the author of five novels, most recently The Heart Broke In. 
Thank you so much to him and Gaith for sharing their reflections on the war and its aftermath. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams with help from Klitsia Sala and Mabel Banfield Unwachi. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson, and we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 